Well, it's a great joy for me to be here tonight. I hope you can understand the accent. If you can't, then I'll have to ask Kurt to come and uh, translate for you. It's lovely to be at this time of the year in such warm weather. I know it's probably unusual for you, but it is really unusual uh, for us coming from Scotland. But it's a joy to be with you, and um, I'm just so happy to be able to bring something from God's Word to you tonight. So if you have a Bible, I'm reading from the New International Version, and I'm reading from John chapter 3 and verses 22 to the end. We're very very familiar with the first half of this chapter, but perhaps not quite so familiar with the second half. Roman, uh, John chapter 3, verse 22. So let's hear the Word of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, that's John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So reads the Word of God. A few years ago, On my birthday, I'll not tell you which one it was, or you'll soon find out my age, but a few years ago on my birthday, I received a card from my daughter. And on the outside of the card, there was a picture of a little girl and holding the hand of her dad. And she's looking up into his face. And the writing on the front of the birthday card said, When I was a little girl... You were my hero. 
Now, I sat in my study as I read that card, and uh, it brought a lump to my throat, and it brought a tear to my eye. Conscious as I am of my failures as a parent, I was overwhelmed by the fact that my daughter, who's now in her late 30s, thought of me when she was a wee girl. She thought of me as her hero. You know, one of the great needs in the Christian church today is for young Christians in particular, but for all of us as Christians, to have heroes. Especially, but not exclusively, in countries or communities where Christians are few and where Christianity is new. There aren't too many heroes around. When I became a Christian in the early 1960s, it was only a few years after the five young men from your own country here in the United States had given their lives in seeking to reach the Auka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. You may have read the story. And they became instantly my heroes as a young Christian. And one of the sayings of one of those young men has lived with me, shadowed me uh, throughout my entire Christian life. The words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, if you read church history, and I hope you do, there are many heroes that you can read about. But actually, there are also plenty of heroes to be found in the pages of the Bible. There's a full chapter of them in Hebrews 11. I have to confess personally to you tonight that John the Baptist is one of my heroes. I wonder who your heroes might be, biblically or historically, but certainly one of my heroes biblically is John the Baptist. I'm glad we don't have the same taste in diet or even in dress. He preferred locusts and wild honey, and he dressed like an Old Testament prophet. Being a Scotsman, I prefer fish and chips, and I prefer a shirt. I think you call them pants, but we call them trousers. And I certainly hope I don't depart from this world the same way as John the Baptist did, with my head in a plate. I couldn't lace his boots, John the Baptist. But he's one of my heroes. Not because we've got the same name, John, and uh, not because I happen to be a Baptist. But he's my hero because as I look at his life, he was a man driven with a passion for the glory of God. And really, there is so much about the man that I personally admire immensely. If ever there was a man who could sing that hymn, All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and ever hope to be, I think it was John the Baptist. He could sing that. He lived to prepare the way for Jesus, you'll remember, as no one else has ever done. And he really stands out in the pages of the Bible as a role model to follow. Now, the words we read in verse 30 there tonight 
with reference to how he saw his relationship to Jesus, I think provides all of us with a motto text for living the one life that God has given us. If you forget everything else I say tonight, I want you to take these words home with you and meditate on them and ponder them and pray over them. Here's how John the Baptist saw his relationship to Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. The King James Version translates it, he must increase. I must decrease. A paraphrase rendering puts it like this. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. It must be terrible to live and not know why you were born. But even more than that, it must be terrible to die and not know why you've lived. The Christian way to live and to die is surely encapsulated in those words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he said, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The big question is, how can that possibly become a reality in my life? Well, the answer is here in John 3, 30. He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. Jesus himself said there was none greater born of women than John. John the Baptist. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And I would submit to you tonight that only a great man can accept his disappearing from the scene, if I may use that phrase, and his own demise. Only a great man can accept those things with great joy. This is one of the great texts of the Bible. This is a motto text for us all. So what I want to do tonight is I want to take the route that the Puritans said every preacher should take, and I want to try and get my sermon from the text, and I want to try and do it by putting it in its context. So here's the first thing I want to mention to you tonight. I don't know if you take notes or not, but if you just remember these points, it will probably help you. I want to suggest to you that this text pinpoints pinpoints the truth of a God-ordained necessity. That little word must lifts the message of that text out of the realm of the optional or the peripheral and it puts it into the realm of the essential. It's a little Greek word, D-E-I, D-I. And it's a word of absolute necessity. It means nothing less than the decreed and determined will of Almighty God. There are some things we could debate tonight. There are some things we could discuss tonight. But there's no debate, there's no discussion about this. It's not the word may, 
It's not the word might, it's not the word ought, and it's not the word should. He must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. Now, from a quick scanning of the chapter, let me just remind you that it's the same word that is used earlier in this third chapter in the seventh verse with reference to the new birth, with reference to the doctrine of regeneration. It's the same word used with reference to how somebody really becomes a Christian. You remember it very well. It's one of the first verses I memorized when I was a Christian. You must be born again. And even the respected, respectable, very religious Nicodemus was told by Jesus, you must be born again. Because like the rest of us, even the children who are here tonight, young people, like all of us in this building, he was born dead in his trespasses and his sins. So this is the must in the life of every sinner. And I'm not talking about a nod of the head or a putting up of the hand or a walking down the aisle. I'm talking about a miracle that only God can perform in the life of a human being that brings that person to repent of their sins and really trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be born again. Someone asked George Whitfield, the 18th century evangelist who crossed the Atlantic many times, as I'm sure most of you will know as an evangelist, somebody asked Whitfield why he was always preaching on the text. You must be born again, wherever he went, here in the States. Why are you preaching on this text? You must be born again. Whitfield simply replied, because you must be born again. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Now, it's also the same word, so keep that in mind. It's the must in the life of the sinner. But it's also the same word that's used in John 3 here with regards to God doing what he did in and through Jesus to save us from our sins by his death on the cross. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, or if you prefer it, the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Absolute necessity. You know the story, don't you? The children of Israel, disobedient as ever. God judging them, sending snakes into the camp, and right throughout the camp they're dying like flies. But in mercy, God said to Moses, put a brass snake on the pole and tell them if they'll look to it, they'll live. And so it's picked up here in verse 14 of John 3 as an illustration. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I would submit to you from that verse that if there was some other way in which God could have saved us, then in his infinite wisdom, he would have found it. But there was no other way. Jesus must become flesh, and Jesus must become sin if you and I are to be declared righteous in God's sight. I can understand God not sparing the angels who sinned. I can understand God not sparing the cities on the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. I can understand God not sparing the world in Noah's day. But when you're reading the Bible, God spared not his own son. 
we really are moving in at a different level altogether. So you read through John 3, you must be born again. It's the must in the life of the sinner. You read here, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's the must in the life of the Savior. One writer put it like this, the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver the people of God from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. What's all that about? The cross. The cross. John the Baptist used exactly the same word with regards to his relationship to Jesus. It's the must with regards to the life of every saint, every Christian. We're all Christians. We're professing Christians. It speaks of that which must take place in the lives of all those who are privileged to be numbered amongst God's family, chosen to be his disciples. He must increase. I must decrease. It's pinpointing the truth of what is a God-ordained necessity. Here's the second thing. I want to suggest to you that it reveals also the secret of a God-honoring ministry. You know, and I know, I trust that we're all saved to serve. No matter who you are, God gives us a gift. He gives us a ministry. Sometimes in Scotland, we talk about the pastor as the minister, as if he's the only man who's got a ministry. But he hasn't. His ministry is to release everybody into ministry. So we've all got a ministry. This text is revealing the secret of a God-honoring ministry, because that's the context here. Now, you know, the Lord Jesus is portrayed in many different ways in the pages of the New Testament. He's, he's the shepherd, isn't he? And we are the sheep. He knows his sheep by name. His sheep hear his voice. They follow him. He gives them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Sheep shepherd. He's the vine, isn't he? We're the branches. He wants us to, to bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. We can only do it if we make sure we abide in the vine. He's also the head, and we are members of the body. The church is the body of Christ. Everybody has a ministry. Can you imagine, look at my body here as an illustration. Can you imagine if my two arms were cut off or my two legs were cut off? The rest of the body would be terribly impaired. Everybody must exercise their ministry. But what we've got here is in this text, there's a revealing of the secret of a God-honoring ministry. A ministry where he must increase and I must decrease. Now, in this passage, you see, Jesus is not the shepherd. He's not the vine. He's not the head. He's the bridegroom. And John, he's the friend of the bridegroom. That's how he describes himself. And he now knows that it's time for him to slip into the background and study to disappear because 
the bridegroom has gone public, he's coming looking for his bride. He's coming to die for his bride. And so the friend of the bridegroom needs to get out of the road. As the friend of the bridegroom, John has been up front. He's making all the necessary preparations. He's preparing the way, isn't he, for the Lord to come. He's making all the necessary preparations. He's organizing all the proceedings for the great day. And now that the bridegroom has come out into the open, he's gone public, it's time for John not just to move from center stage, backstage, but it's time for him to get off the stage altogether. In fact, when you read the passage, that is exactly what's happening on the ground in terms of John's ministry. It's not John's big day. It's the big day of the bridegroom. I've been best man five times. Five times. But on each occasion, it was never my big day. It was the big day for the bride and it was the big day for the bridegroom. And John the Baptist knows He's called to exercise his ministry in preparing the way for the Lord to come. And now that the Lord has come, it's time for John the Baptist to get out of the way as soon as possible. If you read that passage in the other synoptic gospels on the ministry of John the Baptist, you'll know that John the Baptist has been preaching the Word of God. But Jesus is more than a preacher of the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. In fact... He's the everlasting word. And as that lovely hymn puts it, he's the Father's only Son. He's God manifestly seen and heard. And he's heaven's beloved one. John tells us he's of the earth. And any spiritual and eternal blessings that attended his life and ministry, or that will ever attend your life and ministry, or my life and ministry, John the Baptist actually qualifies them using these words. Listen to them. A man or a woman can receive only what is given him from heaven. I'll read it again. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. What a statement that is. Nothing humbles us more than that truth, and nothing exalts the Lord more than that truth. John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel, speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom of the church. He refers to him as he who comes from above, towards the end of that third chapter. He whom God has sent. He to whom God gives the Spirit without limit. He whom the Father loves. The one in whose hands God has placed all things. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you again tonight. Jesus wasn't just head and shoulders above everybody else. He's in a He's in a class of his own. He's not of the earth at all. He's from above. He came from the very presence and the very heart of God. He came from heaven, came to earth as the fulfillment of all God's promises and purposes. When he came, it was time for John in his ministry to disappear from the scene. Matthew Henry, the English Puritan, put it like this. The shining forth of the glory of Christ eclipses the luster of all other glory. As the light of the morning increases, that of the morning star decreases. We must cheerfully be content to be anything, to be nothing, so that Christ may be everything, so that Christ may be all. 
And I would suggest to you that that was the ministry of John the Baptist. And as we would say in Scotland, it was a gay short ministry. It was a very short ministry. But that was his ministry in a nutshell. And this is to be our ministry and service as well, is it not? No matter what that ministry and service may be, it's not about us. It's about him. He must become greater. I must become less. God wants Jesus to have the supremacy in all things. In this age, when there is so much emphasis on self-worth, John Piper sums it up beautifully and succinctly in that book of his, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Here's how Piper puts it. He says, Christ doesn't exist to make much of us. We exist to enjoy making much of him. We serve for his glory, not our own glory. We serve to make his name known, not our own name known. So you look at that text, okay? What's it doing? It's pinpointing, pinpointing the truth about a God-ordained necessity. It's doing something else. It's revealing the secret of a God-honoring ministry. This is what God wants of us in our ministry, whether long or short, whether back or up front or wherever it might be. But let me pull it all together because this is the, really the nub of the matter. This text also teaches the principle of a God-centered piety. John the Baptist found great joy in embracing this principle as God's fundamental requirement for his rather brief ministry. It was the only way to give the Lord Jesus the supremacy and the preeminence that he deserved and desired and that had been decreed to him from all eternity. But as Don Carson comments, a great deal, he says, of later Christian piety has turned on the same truth. In other words, this text that we're looking at tonight, these eight words that you can take home with you, this text has been applied and should be applied and must be applied to what is to happen in our lives as well as in our ministries. He must become greater and greater. We must become less and less in terms of what we are and not just in terms of what we do. There's a difference. The big question is with reference to how can this happen in your life and mine so that we can truly say with our lips and from our hearts to me. Every day I throw my legs over the bed and get up to me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, listen carefully. There are no shortcuts to this becoming our experience. That is for sure. The answer is found in taking up our cross every day. We must recapture the principle of dying as part of normal Christian living. Watchman Nee who was very much involved in the house church movement in China, he said the average Christian life is not the normal Christian life. In other words, he looked out and he saw 
people living the Christian life, average Christian life. He looked at it, what was the average Christian life, and he compared it with the Bible, and he said, that's not the normal Christian life. Tozer, I think he's from this state. He certainly ministered in Akron. I know that much. You can put me right afterwards. A.W. Tozer was convinced in his day that professing Christians want Jesus to do all the dying. Whereas the New Testament teaches us that Jesus actually calls his disciples to die if they are to live their life to the full. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. In 1970, after serving the Lord for 17 years in Zaire, or the Belgian Congo, as it was known as then, as a doctor, come surgeon, director of a paramedic college, Helen Rosevier found that her presence at the Evangelical Medical Center, as it was called, was no longer essential. Over the years, some of the doctors and nurses she had helped to train were now more qualified than her. And they asked her one day if she would mind becoming the office girl. They were sort of a demoting her to a life of duplicating, typing, and filing. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but she was a doctor who had taught them. Okay? And at first, when they spoke to her, she didn't like it. Grumbled. And then she was forcefully reminded that this was an opportunity for her to die. Spiritually, of course. See, something had happened to her earlier in her life to show her that this was the way to live the Christian life. An African pastor had seen her as a young missionary trying to live the Christian life but failing so miserably in front of her colleagues. And one day, gently, firmly, but lovingly, he said to Helen Rosevier one day, Helen, do you know what's wrong with you? We can see so much of Helen that we can't see Jesus. And he opened the Bible and he read to her Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that verse? This African pastor said to her, that is what happened to you when you first came to God for forgiveness and for salvation. But Helen, that needs to be your everyday experience as well. Let me give you another illustration. Have you heard of Len Moles? Probably not. He was a WEC missionary in the Himalayas. He wrote a book called Three Miles High because he was reaching unreached tribes way up in the Himalayas. Another book he wrote was a book called Ascent of the Inner Everest. And he tells in that book a story about himself. He was an experienced missionary on the field for some years, full of zeal, and enthusiasm, and God was blessing him in his work. And one day, a senior missionary visited him 
stayed in his house. Took him aside one day and told him that there was too much of Len Moles still to be seen in Len Moles. He was devastated. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Len Moles tells how afterwards he went out onto the mountainside. He lay himself down, face down, with his arms out, prostrate, as it were, in the form of a cross. And he asked God to put an end to Len Moles once and for all. Now, I am not worthy to untie the shoelaces of a man like Len Moles. But I don't think it's as simple as that. And I'll tell you why. I believe the Bible teaches that there are many hundreds and thousands of deaths to die in the living of the Christian life as God wants us to live it. What did the Apostle Paul say? I die daily. I sometimes wonder, I wonder how many times he died every day spiritually. Let's say it was once a day. 365 days in a year. In 50 years, he would have 18,250 opportunities to die. Let's say it was 10 times a day. 50 years, he would have 182,500 opportunities to die. Let's say it was 100 times a day, which is probably just about right. He would have 1,825,000 times opportunities to die. So that Christ might be his life. I fear in the evangelical church, I'm not talking about anybody else, I fear in the evangelical church and evangelicalism today, we are in great danger of bypassing this truth to our spiritual poverty and to the weakening of the testimony of the Christian church and to the diminishing of Christ's glory in our lives and in our ministries. This, this text is telling us about something that simply must take place in our lives. It's drawing attention to a truth that we must treasure. It's telling us about a Savior that we must serve. It's talking about a life we must live. What we are is to reflect this text. When I was converted, I was 19 years of age. And a school chum heard that I had been converted. He was at Bible College in the south of England. We had gone to school together. We were in the same class. We played in the same soccer team at primary school and at secondary school. And when he heard I'd been converted, he wrote me a letter to encourage me, to tell me that he'd been praying for me. I can't recall much of the content of the letter, but I remember the text at the bottom of the page of the letter. Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And I bring that to you at the end of what I want to say to you tonight because I don't want anybody to go out that door feeling they've been driven into the ground tonight. I want you to know if God has done something in your life and you're his, he's not going to stop short of completing the work he has begun. He wants to make us like Jesus. He wants Jesus to increase and us to decrease. And you may feel at times in the process that your life is in a bit of a mess. That's because God is taking away, cutting away all those things that are not Christ-like. I've come to the conclusion that if every Christian took up his cross every day and took every opportunity to die, there would never be a split ever again in any Christian church on planet Earth. And Christians would be people who truly love one another. And we would be working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God who works in us, both to willing to do it of his good pleasure, and we would be the salt and light that God wants us all to be. I might never be back in this beautiful part of the world. Remember that text. He must become greater. I must become less. Just one last quote, and this is from one of your own people, a man called Adoniram Judson. Do you know the name? First American missionary to leave these shores. I was in Burma just a few weeks ago, and I saw the Bible that he gave to the Burmese people in their own language. That was his life's work. He was a great missionary. Here's what Judson said. A life once spent, a life once spent is irrevocable. It will remain to be contemplated through eternity. If it has been a useless life, it can never be improved. The same may be said of each day. It is too late to mend the days that are past. But the future is in our power. Let us then each morning resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb, in such a dress, as we shall wish it to wear forever. And at night, let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone. When it's all been said and done, at the end of the day, God wants us and will make us like Jesus. But let's take that that text and ask God to make it real every day from today until the day we breast the tape.